This is Mako President Jerry Walker, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Today on the podcast, we are going to recap the most recent meeting of the Kerwin Commission. That's the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. They held their most recent meeting yesterday on Halloween, October 31st, and actually started to talk about a lot of the things that we've been talking about for what seems forever on this podcast, a lot of the financial components of Maryland's education formula. We'll give you a full recap there. Then we'll get into Maryland's general election, which is coming up on Tuesday, obviously a hot topic around town. We'll go through some of the interesting races for you. We've seen a sharp uptick in early voting. We'll talk about what that could potentially mean in terms of turnout for the general election. And then we will take a look at some of the most interesting ballot questions that have popped up across the country. All right, so Michael, let's jump right into it. At the Kerwin Commission meeting yesterday, we had a presentation from the Department of Legislative Services who were joined at the table by representatives from the consultants who made these recommendations what seems like so long ago. Right. So those of us who have been asking to see the numbers and let's crunch some of this stuff down, this was the panel of people we've been waiting to see. Um, all the analysts from the state legislature who have been hands-on with this stuff and the the outfit from, I think, Denver who was who was brought in specifically to go through recommendations for what Maryland could do. So the first issue that they tackled here was net taxable income, and this can get really wonky. We can get into the weeds here. We're not going to do that. (laughs) If you want to get more information, we have an article on our blog. You can also go to the DLS website. But essentially, Michael, this is how you calculate personal income. There was an issue with this a few years ago. The General Assembly addressed it, and then there was some talk about uh, doing away with that fix. But Michael, why is uh, personal income so important in education? Right. So education funding is, for the most part, wealth equalized, meaning that the state comes up with an overall dollar amount. We've talked about this here and there on the podcast, but the state comes up with, here's how much it's going to cost to educate the kids in this system. And the state share of that is a certain percent. That's a function of how wealthy the local jurisdiction is. You look at their tax base for raising property taxes and their tax base for levying income taxes to come up with how much wealth does the jurisdiction have? How do you calculate that wealth? And how do you calculate the personal income is tricky in part because the federal government years ago changed when people can get a filing extension. Right. So short version in here is you got an old calculation and a new calculation. Maryland has kind of solved that problem by patching it over with an add-on grant for jurisdictions who did better under the old calculation. Mm -hmm. And what the direction that we saw yesterday with the commission seems to be get rid of that add-on grant. It has outlived its usefulness and it doesn't make much sense to keep there anymore. So that may be the aggregate conclusion they come up with. And there's, you know, there's a couple jurisdictions who are heavily affected by this Montgomery most notably, but there are going to be other puts and takes in the various funding recommendations from this commission. And it may be that the powers that be in Montgomery see this is part of a larger push and pull, but I, I do think it is testament to how vulnerable you are when your program is a little appendix. When you stick out, you know, like a sore thumb, that what's this extra column of numbers? Well, it was it was a political deal from some years ago, and I don't really remember the details, but we keep doing it that way. That's an easy cut when times get tough in budgeting. So, you know, Anyway, I think I think that notion is going to come up as in other things that we talk about. I think that does make sense. It, it it takes away a layer of complexity, and also it does give you some security to where that that number doesn't stick out like a sore thumb down the road, and somebody says, "Well, what is this, and why are we doing it?" Especially if the jurisdictions who have something to lose by this by this change end up with something else in this package to offset that loss. So that's probably the thinking here. All right. The next issue discussed by the consultants and DLS was combining income and property wealth. We know, Michael, that 
we calculate wealth currently in Maryland by adding a county's income and property wealth. Right. The consultants had recommended a multiplicative approach, and that approach would have really uh, exacerbated the differences between jurisdictions. It was it was a strange idea that that the 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 consultants APA put on the table, and this is now going back more than two years right. ago. But uh, when they issued a report, they had suggested we could take these two components, and rather than having some weighted average of the two, that we could multiply the two together to come up with something else. And I I think we talked about this on the podcast months and months ago, but that would leave you with a really odd circumstance. If you're a relatively poor jurisdiction and you have only 80% of the average per pupil wealth in both property and income. So right now you'd come out as like a 0.8 on that index, no matter how you weighted those two. But if you multiply them together, 0.8 times 0.8 is like 0.64. So suddenly you look far less wealthy and far more in need of extra assistance. Mm -hmm. The opposite would happen for someone who's at 0.1.2 in each factor. You'd go to, wow, 1.44, you're way more wealthy than in either a component that you are, that never sat well with me intellectually. I think there were other county stakeholders who felt the same way. And interestingly enough, Britt Kerwin himself sniffed out the exact same issue. The reads seemed to be they sort of dismissed the multiplicative approach right away. Yeah, Dr. Kerwin questioned why the consultant would recommend multiplying these two numbers together. I think it's safe to say that the multiplicative proposal is dead and off the table. I think that's off the table. Um, It looks like the direction they're heading now would be evolution rather than revolution. And the, the blend of income and property right now is a reasonable approximation of how much revenue counties in the aggregate gain from income tax and property tax. Uh, DLS, the, the professional staff to the legislature, they, they seem to be advancing an idea to let's true that up even more precisely. So rather than being something like 65-35, we'll pin it to exactly 60-40, which is just about where the split between property taxes and income taxes in actuality sits. How you do that maybe has yet to be sorted out, but that would be a relatively small change. We have some jurisdictions who I think we're hanging their hat on big relief on this front. And that doesn't look like it's coming. No, it doesn't. So we'll have to wait and see. These are not, obviously, these are not final recommendations, but still some details to work out in all of this. I mean, sitting in the room, one of the things that you, know, you and I are trying to do is trying to gauge, does this pass the smell test? Does it, does a commission feel like, you know what, that recommendation seems reasonable. Let's go with that. And I think what we were hearing on this topic yesterday was, yeah, that incremental change to true it up with actual revenues, that seemed okay. Mm-hmm. And then when they got to, but maybe we'll administratively tweak this every year, there were some questions about that, and it doesn't sound like any state does that. So maybe you just pin it at 60-40, and then if you have to tweak it in 10 years, you do that. So the next issue, tax increment financing, this is another one, Michael, where we could get into the weeds here. We're not going to do that. So basically, tax increment financing, or TIFs, are tools used by several Maryland counties to encourage economic development. Yeah, and the the idea here is, again, we're talking about how does the state calculate your county's wealth for purposes of deciding what the state and county split of school funding should look like. And if you have pledged um, tax base towards particular purposes and don't have it available to fund schools, should that tax base make you look like a wealthier jurisdiction than you really have the capacity to tax? That's the inherent tricky question here. So, and, and the, the case in point is Baltimore city making a big tax increment financing investment in the Port Covington development. That's presumably going to bring a great deal of economic activity and jobs and so forth. But, to make that all happen, one of the components was we need the new tax revenue from the stuff that's being developed to pay off the bonds for the infrastructure that makes that development happen. And therefore, we don't have that money to put toward education. Right. So if if you buy that line of thinking, then you shouldn't be counting that revenue in when you make this assessment of how wealthy is Baltimore City in their ability to fund schools. That's the snapshot version of this debate. So the fix in the General Assembly was that you would calculate education aid twice. Once would be including the assessed value of the property in a TIF, 
and the other would exclude the increase in the value of property in the TIF. And then the county would receive a grant to make sure that it received the higher state aid for those two calculations. So in 2018, there was a bill that made these grants permanent. Right. And so so right now, this sits in Maryland law for disparity grant jurisdictions. These are jurisdictions who don't get a big bang for the buck out of their local income tax. So these are relatively poor jurisdictions measured by income. And that would like to stimulate growth, right? And that's right. the reason you would install a TIF. Right. So this this matches back to things like the one Maryland concept that that is that has showed up in lots of different places in, in Maryland law. Anyway, um, so this is on the books now, but it's on the books as an add-on rider grant. That idea of calculate it twice and we'll give you a little extra pay, you know, patch over money to, to, to satisfy the difference. Well, um, as, as we talked about a moment ago with, with, uh, net taxable income, add-on grants are notoriously vulnerable to political vagaries. So the recommendation here seems to be let's bake that in to the, the, the fundamental way we calculate wealth so we don't have multiple calculations. It's just out of the picture if it qualifies. And if the state decides to do that, that basically will transform this add-on column of numbers into something that is deep in the bowels of the calculations that nobody really goes in and reviews with any regularity. It doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. Right. So, I mean, politically, that's a pretty big deal, even if it didn't sound like it to most of the audience, which I'm sure it didn't. All right. So the next issue here, declining enrollment. Michael, we know that education funding is distributed on a per pupil basis. So the more students you have in your schools, the more funding you receive. Which makes sense because by and large, we think of, you know, I mean, a school system with twice as many kids has twice as many lunches to serve and buses to drive and, and, you know, classrooms to fill and teachers to hire and so forth. So in, in the large scale, sure, that makes sense. Most functions are variable costs and more students means more costs. So when that number of students declines, when you have declining enrollment, schools can experience a sudden drop off in funding. And that's where counties are facing this issue. Yeah, part of, part of this gets tricky. You kind of get a double hit. Mm-hmm. If your tax base is more or less flat, we've been talking about we distribute money based on wealth. So if for some reason your school population is going down by a percent or two, not only are there fewer students to fund, so we give you dollars per student, but also your jurisdiction, when we do that wealth calculation, we're taking an amount of, you know, property tax, you know, property value and income and so forth, dividing it by your number of students. But if the denominator of that fraction, the number of students is now smaller, it makes your county look wealthier, meaning not only are you getting paid for fewer students, but the dollars per student will come down as well. It compounds the effect. It's really tricky and not every cost in education is a variable cost. You still need one principal for that school, regardless of whether there's 800 or 750 students. Exactly. So we have fixed costs and variable costs. That's what we're talking about here. And Michael, this is another area where the state did create a fix. A county can use either the prior three years average enrollment or the previous year's enrollment. And that way, you're not going to have that sudden drop in funding. And again, that was through an add-on grant. And here again, we see the Department of Legislative Services saying, let's do away with the grant. Let's bake that into the funding formula. So so the the net result would be if your population if your school population is growing which is most of the counties most of the time then that's fine we recognize those new kids and we fund them right away but if you're in decline especially if you're in decline for multiple years we kind of smooth that out recognizing that not every single cost is a variable cost right. some things are fixed and we eventually get to the you know to the right number but it's smoothed out a little bit and that you know, reduces that immediate shock that of cliff suddenly, effect. yeah, like when well, you lose one and a half percent of your students in a year, suddenly you lose 5% of your funding because of those double effects. That's a really big deal. This is saying nobody should have to endure that big of a shock. So avoid the cliff. So get rid of the grants, avoid the cliff and bake it in. Mm-hmm. seems to be a trend here. All right. So Michael, those were the big uh, recommendations or the analysis of the consultants recommendations from the department of legislative yeah, services, on the financing on side. the finance yeah, side. Yeah. So let's get in to some of the other issues that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Let's talk about teachers and teacher pay specifically. So what we heard yesterday from the commission seemed to be that the state would now set the floor on teacher pay. And Michael, that is a dramatic shift from the way things are done in Maryland. But I think the big number that people were talking about 
was that the minimum starting salary for teachers would be $60,000. Right. I mean, that that's going to be the headline grabber from the entire day's meetings. And this, I mean, this commission met from, what, 9.30 in the morning till 4.30 in the afternoon, a break for lunch, but it was just round after round after round of all these different things. But I think, you know, if you're the cub reporter trying to follow this stuff and seeing what your headline all teachers make 60 grand. That's your headline, right? right? So, right. um, and the, the, this is something of a contrast with the approach that we've seen from the commission to date. They've been talking a lot about investing in the teaching profession, mm-hmm. making it more attractive and lucrative. We know that's a direction they want to head. We don't know how you pay for that or how you do that, but, but still that's been one of their, their focus areas. But the idea of actually putting a floor, maybe one that would apply statewide mm-hmm. at a certain number or like we get to that by a certain year, um, that's a different angle than just every teacher makes more. Right. The local impacts of this floor, I think it's interesting because this is a one-size-fits-all solution should they decide to do this statewide, create this floor. Let's talk about the impact in maybe Allegheny County versus Montgomery County. So I ran the numbers. And for $60,000 starting salary in Allegheny County, you'd be making 60% more than the average household income. In comparison, in Montgomery County, you would be making 80% of the average household income. So I guess it's a great policy question to talk about. Right. I, I think it's interesting. And it's, I mean, this isn't really a, you know, here's the make of view on what you ought to do or whether this is wise, but it's a peculiar thing to draw a line and say, I mean, I, I guess it accomplishes one thing that it's it's an easy to recite sort of thing. Sixty sixty thousand for every teacher. That might be a, a slogan or it might be a stump speech and and that sort of thing. And I, I, those things have their advantages. But as as a matter of policy, so what what are you doing? What do you what do you accomplish for a jurisdiction that has that already has a high cost of living? They can't attract and retain teachers for less than that number. You've affected nothing there. So essentially you are saying we are going to increase pay for rural jurisdictions where maybe the cost of living is not as much and the average household income is not as much. So, so if, if the goal was let's get, you know, let's get these, you know, these high school juniors and college sophomores to think about the teaching profession, that, I mean, that's what we've been hearing, sure, right? For sure. for more than a year, the commission has been saying, let's let's put teaching on the same kind of a plane as engineering. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if that's your goal, if you you don't you don't change much of anything if you set a floor that's lower than Montgomery County. You don't change anything in Montgomery County. It's interesting, right? right? It's so, interesting. I, I mean, it, it's a it's a curious um, geographically curious thing to do as a policy objective. And it, it looks like they would layer this in along with the goals of everybody gets more, everybody gets a raise over the first few years, and then you phase up and you trigger this floor at some point. Correct. So maybe it's something from column A and something from column B, but still the the, the general idea that the floor looks the same in low-cost parts of the state and high-cost parts of the state um, actually sort of defies a lot of the logic that these financial consultants have have been raising all, all through this process. And another, another issue that we really should discuss, Michael, is the idea that the commission wants to reduce actual instructional time from between 75 and 80 percent now all the way down to 60 percent. And the idea here is to give teachers more opportunities to you know, work with one another and professional development time. That's in, in other countries that's very successful. But we know that would be really expensive. And in fact, that would result in the need for about 20 percent more educators. Obviously, this would be phased in. But, you know, I know there is this question about if you have a pot of money, like, should you should you hire more teachers or should you increase their salaries? Right. I mean, this is just this is just math. I mean, you know, I'm a product of public schools. I can sort all this stuff out. I mean, there's always been an implied tension in the way we provide public education and the way we hire teachers that if there's a li- another layer of money to go around, is it better to pay our current teachers more to keep them around, to make them loyal, to ha- you know have them pursue further education and so forth, make them better teachers? Or is it, should it be your priority to hire more teachers and reduce class sizes? Right. And I mean, that's always been looming in the background. That's 
and oddly enough, that's one of the things that the county government gets virtually no say in the way we fund education. There's a category for instructional salaries and it's just a big behemoth. We don't, we don't have a say in the headcount. Right. But, but that's an important issue for school boards and superintendents and principals. Um, and, and everybody who's got a stake in public education. And here now, yeah, the idea that you know, when 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 the commission is is making such a focus on this teacher will get more money, and maybe each teacher will be brought up to this new level, everybody's going to get sixty k. Um, inherently, you're kind of putting your thumb on the scale of that long-standing debate in public education funding. If you're a fan of bigger class sizes, you might implicitly be losing this fight if it's about higher teacher salaries. Exactly. So it's an interesting issue. Okay, Michael, governance and accountability, this has also been a sticking point for this commission. We don't want to get into the weeds here again, but this all has to do with who is going to ensure that this commission is implementing the recommendations or really that jurisdictions are implementing the commission's recommendations. Right. And Michael, this is inherently political at this point, which we saw with the school construction commission as well. Right. So I think there are political elements to it. And I mean, this conversation went on and on and back and forth and has extended meeting after meeting after meeting. So, I mean, I guess – at, at this point, if, I mean, if you're listening and you are now huddled closely to your, you know, to your, to your computer screen or whatever, you know, want to listen to these details, I, I, I think the bottom line is y- you probably have to go to the source. So the General Assembly website, um, if you want to, if you want to hear the last meeting, you can watch video and listen to audio of the last meeting from October 3rd, 31st, uh, search on the Appropriations Committee. Um, you can listen to the whole debate, and I think that's the only way to get the full flavor of this. I mean, I think you would probably agree something's coming here. The sure. commission wants there to be an oversight body. It sounds like they're committed to it's not simply good enough to make this one more thing that the current State Board of Education should be tasked with doing. Right. That's the debate. Right? But, but exactly who and who appoints them and it's like, you know, and on foxes and hen houses and things of that nature, like we're, we're trying to enlist all of the personnel involved in that job, but that's tricky. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm losing track of who's voting for what and why um, it's gotten complicated and it's definitely political. It's interesting. Something's coming here. Sure. I don't know exactly what, and I don't claim to know why. All right. So on that note, Michael stumped on the note, we're going to, we're going to go ahead and take a break. We will come back. We're going to talk about elections. We'll talk about early voting and then we'll get into some interesting ballot initiatives, all that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. All right, Michael, there are a lot of folks who write about national elections and even the General Assembly. Yeah. That's really not our bag. We, we're watching that stuff, but sure, for sure. the purpose of this podcast and for MAKO, we are watching some of the interesting local races. And I think, Michael, what we want to do here is run through a couple of the interesting races quickly. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we do know there are some interesting issues and we do know folks are interested yep. in these races. Yep, we certainly are. When we were doing uh, a wrap-up just after the primary dates, we had the interesting situation of having to walk the floors for a little while along with multiple candidates as they were doing recounts and double recounts on on, on some of these close races and primaries. Well, two of the counties where where we saw really close primary races – there's still intrigue for county executive. Uh, Baltimore County was down to handfuls of votes in the Democratic primary back in June. And that is a hotly contested, well-funded, aggressively battled two-party race for county executive in Baltimore County. I mean, Baltimore County has always been a little purplish, even though the last several county executives and, and the, the statewide races have gone to Democrats. 
Um, they've tended to be maybe a different flavor of Democrat in some cases than the Montgomery and Prince George's Democrats and so forth. So, um, it's not a surprise that a, a, uh, a credentialed and well-funded Republican candidate is making a real race up in, up in Baltimore County. So Johnny Olszewski Jr., uh, a former state delegate and, uh, Al Redmer, who's also a former state delegate and has been in the Hogan and Ehrlich administrations, uh, both of them have of laid out a big vision for what would be next steps in Baltimore County. And uh, there's been a lot of money, a lot of media, and an awful lot of attention up there. That's probably the highlight race, I think, in, in Maryland County government. Yeah, I mean, we can say that race is too close to call. I think that's fair. M- most people are saying so. I think there's been polling that's suggested m- multiple different ways, but uh, I don't think there's anybody who feels super secure. All right. So Montgomery County is the other race you were referring to there, Michael. We had an interesting twist after that primary election. Um, Elrich won the Democratic nomination. Montgomery County Council member Nancy Florine (laughs) then decided she was going to throw her hat in the race. And Nancy Florine, Michael, seems to be raising some money. Well, I think that's the thing that makes this interesting, still interesting, right? Um, in, In a conventional election, the Democratic primary more or less resolves countywide issues for Montgomery. So that's, that's that. And, and most people I think are looking at the, like the at large county, um, county council races that way. As, as a practical matter though, uh, Nancy Florine, you know, last, last we saw was closing in on a million dollars raised. So. And she collected so, all those signatures right. just to get on the ballot. Right. right? So, so, so she's tapped into something and, you know, whether this is about issues of development or about tenor or whatever it is, uh, she's a name that a lot of people have known. They voted for before. She's not your average, you know, um, independent, unaffiliated, no name, write in, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, the sort of candidate who, who is there to make a point, not necessarily to move the needle. So I don't know what the proper handicapping of the race is. Uh, the person who has the, the party affiliation is properly considered the favorite. And I suspect Mr. Elrich is probably the favorite there. Uh, but it's not as simple as it might have appeared at one point. I don't know. I mean, like you said, usually the, the, the candidate who has that D next to their name right. has the advantage, but right. we, we just don't know. Yeah, we haven't had to watch Montgomery County executive race in November for an awfully long time. So, you know, that's, it's, these things happen. So, I mean, we, we both live in Anne Arundel County. It's been a pretty spirited race for Anne Arundel County executive where, where Steve Shue is seeking reelection um, in a county that he, he won relatively comfortably in the last election. But uh, I guess there are some signs pointing, you know, some people are saying that that looks like it may be a close race as well. Yeah, Stuart Pittman running as the Democratic nominee, depending on which poll you look at, as is always the case, uh, some have it closer, some have shoe with still a comfortable lead. But I think it's interesting that this race has gotten as close as it has. And we've seen that, Michael, across the state. Tell us what's going on in Washington County. I mean, we, we saw a shift there, but it looks like I don't know. Maybe Hagerstown's going to move the needle. Maybe we could see a Democrat in Washington County. Yeah, it's. I mean, the the last two terms, Washington County, they they elect their county commissioners at large, so there's no districts there, um, but they're all elected at large by the by the whole county. And um, the last two terms, it was Republican sweeps two times in a row. Uh, before that, they were purplish and would elect one or two Democrats in, in, in their midst. Is it possible that the county moves back in that direction? I, I think it's possible. There are there are credible and and articulate and well-funded Democratic candidates on the ballot this go-round. The other twist is – John Barr, a county commissioner who's been 12 years in office, right. um, served as MACO president a couple of years ago and is a really familiar face at our events and in our, in our shop. Um, he's run, he's on the ballot, but he's running as an independent. He's an unaffiliated independent candidate. Um, along with, uh, Bill McKinley, who's a former county commissioner, ran sixth, I think, in the last election. So he's another familiar face. They're both running as independents. And they both have name recognition. Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, ordinarily, uh, like, like we just said, it's tough to run as an independent, but I, neither of those is your run of the mill random person who just, you know, passed around a clipboard and got some signatures. So 
is it possible we end up with, you know, one or two Republicans or, you know, one or two Democrats, one or two independents and the balance are Republicans? I, I think that's possible in Washington County. And maybe they're part of a band of counties that could be, we could be asking the same question about, uh, we had, we saw in the 2010 election, which was a pretty pivotal one on a national level. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw in the 2010 election a fair number of county governments go from a red and blue mix to all red. And it's at least possible that a couple of those jurisdictions swing back and elect a mix of two party representation. Um, that wouldn't surprise me at all if some of the ex-urban counties do that in, in 2018. Yeah. And in Washington County, we do see more registered Democrats. So who knows? I mean, maybe that's part of this trend that people are predicting, but I do think it's interesting. Some of those 2010 counties who went all red yeah. certainly could see a shift back here. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the interesting races. Now let's get into early voting. I think the first thing we have to say here is that early voting in Maryland is still a relatively new idea. And we really don't know what the turnout for early voting means for the general election, right? So we don't have the data to back up, okay, if this many people show up for early voting, that means we're going to have a huge general right. election. We just don't know that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tempting to mm-hmm. say, because, I mean, you've, got, you've dug up some of the numbers. I mean, the turnout mm-hmm. for early voting has been, I guess, more than double what we saw last go-round. So there's an indi- indication that, that turnout is higher, and... I mean, one interpolation of that would be, wow, um, the people who show up on Tuesday are going to be twice as many as last go around as well. I I don't think you can make any connection at all what what turnout means uh, for the overall turnout. I mean, it may be that every single one of these new early voters are people who just – just found out that early voting was a thing or they figured out where to go or how to do it, or they were frustrated last time and they went stood in a long line. So they're angry about that. And they decided to you know beat the lines and go on Wednesday. I mean, there's lots of explanations, but we might just be seeing lots of would be Tuesday voters showing up the week before. I mean, put it this way, I'm voting early and I was going to go show up on Tuesday if we didn't have early voting. And there are a lot of people that I know would have gone Tuesday. So really it's impossible to know the amount of people who would have voted Tuesday, but now are voting early. But just a quick stat through seven days of early voting. And as we record here on Thursday, November 1st, today is the last day of early voting. We've seen 13.86% of eligible voters in Maryland show up to the polls. Democrats have turned out 16% of eligible voters, while Republicans have turned out 13% of eligible voters. So that's interesting. But Michael, I do think what's interesting too is this ballot security issue. And maybe that does play a role here as well in terms of people being worried on election day that things could get complicated or there could be some issues. So they want to go ahead and get ahead of the curve get their vote in early and not get caught up in, you know, I don't think anything's going to go wrong, but I guess you never know. And there's this national conversation about voting machines and and the security of our election. So what do you think in terms of that issue, you know, driving some of this early turnout? I think it's, it's really tough to say. I, um, I think a lot of people, you and I read Barry Raskovar. He's a guy who's been kicking around Maryland politics for an awfully long time. I subscribe to his stuff and, and you should too. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, he speculated that maybe that's one of the driving issues that people are concerned about, you know, meddling and, you know, that well, I'm, I'm afraid that my vote, if I cast on, on, on election day, that, that it's, there's going to be some sort of meddling that's going to mess it up. I'd rather hand my thing to a person on a day where I know, you know, she looks me in the eye and so forth. Uh, or, or the worried about long lines or other things like that. You know, he, he, he went maybe a little tinfoil hat on it, but I think, you know, it's, it's unknown. It's unknown. What's driving this. Is it just better publicity that it's available or is it people are concerned or worried or whatever? I know, you know, I know lots of people who went for the first time at this election decided to early vote for the first time. And I mean, people are, I mean, people not just at like the county government level, but at, at every level, people are wondering if there's going to be an enthusiasm wave, whether it's blue or red or young or whatever, but is there going to be an enthusiasm wave that people like, I'm so excited to vote 
boat. You know, I'm afraid I might slip and fall by Tuesday and not be able to make it. So I'm doing it right now. I'm driving by the library. I'm pulling over and I'm going to go, go vote right this minute. So I don't, don't lose my chance. You know, that, that would indicate some degree of you'd expect a bump in turnout. Um, but if, I mean, if I voted in every election, but this year I'm just really pumped up to vote, that doesn't change turnout, but I don't know, maybe I'm chomping at the bit. I don't know. Yeah, I love that term, enthusiasm <laughs> wave. But generally, we've heard a lot of people speculate about a blue wave. And Michael, we have seen Democrats turning out in high numbers in counties that we wouldn't necessarily expect them to. On the lower shore in general, there is a semi-competitive congressional race, and maybe that's what's driving this right. high turnout. Yeah, and I mean, I, we, you and I were trying to figure out, you know, Talbot County, why would they be? They're an outlier, as I recall. They're not just the highest in the state, but they're the highest by a pretty wide margin. Yeah, they're almost 30%. So I wonder, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some sort of a hot wash after the election to figure out what happened there. Um, is it seniors? I mean, we know there's a pretty, there's a pretty populous senior community as a share of the population in Talbot County. So maybe that's part of it, or is it a better education campaign or is there, you know, is there something like that going on to get people to come out and vote early? I don't know, but uh, something's happening in Talbot, but you're right. There's a blue tinge in some places where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. If you're seeing sort of a bulge of blue voters in a place like Frederick County, I mean, that's a County executive race that's being contested. Um, maybe the same thing in Howard County. It's another County executive race that everybody's going to be watching. In Arundel County. Right. Yeah. So, so all those are places where if, if there's a, there's a extra packet of blue voters coming out early, if that continues till Tuesday, that could be the blue wave that some people have been talking about. We will be back next week with a recap of the elections, Michael. We'll, we'll, we'll dedicate an episode to talking about the results and we'll focus, of course, on county races, but should be really interesting. And uh, I'm excited for Tuesday. Yeah. I look forward to it. All right. So we know in Maryland, we have a couple initiatives on the ballot, Michael. We've talked about the lockbox. We've talked about same day voter registration, right? We know those are interesting here, but let's talk about some interesting initiatives that are showing up on the ballots across the country. And let's start with residents in Washington state and Oregon who will vote on measures that would ban new taxes on groceries, except for alcohol, tobacco, and marijuana, which is legal in those states. So this is sales tax kind of stuff we're talking about? Correct. So now, I mean, I'm trying to remember, but I'm I'm sort of a tax wonk. And as I recall, Washington and Oregon are weird that only one of those states has an income tax and only one of those states has a sales tax, but they both have sales tax issues on the ballot? What's going on? Yeah, so Oregon has no sales tax. And actually, the question on Oregon's ballot initiative is much more stringent. It applies retroactively to any tax passed after October 1st of 2017. Hmm. And we've actually seen some big soda conglomerates pouring money into this state. Uh, millions and millions of dollars. So really, I think what this has to do with is that this would kill a soda tax that passed in one of the counties there. So, so yeah, preemption. Now, now you're talking about issues that Mako cares about, right, counties right. care I about, told you and our get there. county counterparts across the country care about. Um, so, so if if Oregon puts something on the ballot, even without having a general sales tax, I mean, one thing this does is it preemptively says, in the event that the state were to have a sales tax, the Constitution will now say it can't tax groceries. So that, that sounds progressive and it sounds like a pretty good idea. Maybe most states don't tax groceries as it is. I will say though, (laughs) there have been multiple attempts to install a sales tax and Oregon voters have rejected it over and over and over and over again. Right. So maybe they don't trust their kids to keep their hands out of the cookie jar. So that, that, you're an optimist. Maybe that's it. But but if the real issue here is those 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 scoundrels in Portland, and that's who it is, right? And it's got to oh, be Multnomah County, right? So yeah, of course it is. It so is. so it's Portlandia here. Um, if if they're you know under under the giant umbrella of groceries, if one of the things included there is sugary sodas, I mean that's kind of become a trendy thing to isolate isolate and do kind of like a syntax, like we do on cigarettes or alcohol or things like that. A tax on sugary sodas. Sodas, particularly to target, you know, something something that's popular. I think that's what they did in Philadelphia. Correct. Um, so, I mean, this is. 
this is a preemption strike against local activism on that kind of targeted tax. That is interesting. That's interesting, right? Because locals have the ability to pass these local taxes. And, you know, you and I could probably agree here that because of all that outside money, it's pretty clear that this is a strike on local governments and trying to make sure that no one is going to pass a tax on sugary drinks. Got it. We have been seeing this as a trend generally, not just in taxes, but in all sorts of policy that stakeholders who are aggrieved by the action of one city or one county or a group of counties, they march to their state capital and try and Hmm. beg for a new audience in the state capital saying, how about you all preempt all your locals and settle the policy right here? Um, We're fighting that fight on multiple fronts in Annapolis, and I'm sure, you know, they're doing the same thing in Salem. Yeah. And, you know, really, Oregon is being put into a petri dish here. And if this is successful, you could see this popping up across the country. Right. Right. Oh, I mean, this will be I mean, they'll do a half day on this at the ALEC conference talking about how to shut down the sugar tax. That's right. That's right. (laughs) All right. So interesting one there. Now, Michael, let's talk about tobacco taxes. We know that every state taxes cigarettes and, you know, that often goes to fund smoking cessation, etc. However, you know, Montana and South Dakota are looking to raise taxes on cigarettes in November to fund other initiatives. In Montana, voters are being asked to hike the tax on a pack of cigarettes by $2, bringing it up to $3.70. And the idea is that that extra revenue would be used to fund Medicaid expansion. Thinking outside the box here and thinking about raising sin taxes to fund other initiatives is interesting. It is interesting. I don't think it's, I don't think it's unheard of, but it is kind of a, an interesting marriage. I mean, state of Montana is, I mean, this is the wild west. This is a very independent spirit kind of state. Mm-hmm. Um, for them to contemplate Medicaid expansion, even though it's substantially federally paid for, that is philosophically a relatively big move for a state like that. I was just in South Dakota and there was a lot of chatter on the local media and the local radio stations talking about multiple things. But this, um, the, the uh, tobacco tax increase there was pretty hotly debated. And there it's all about jobs. Mm-hmm. It's not social services, but it's about trying to, you know, trying to position their economy for modern job opportunities. And that's that's an interesting sell too. It's a it's 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 an interesting issue. I'll be watching that closely after spending some time there. Yeah, fascinating. And you know, they want to raise it by a dollar to fund you know technical institutes and shore up the state's workforce development, which of course we're trying to do here in Maryland too, sure, and yeah. a lot of states are trying to do. Yeah. So another one that we have to watch closely to see what happens. Mm-hmm. All right, I think this one's fascinating too, Michael. Public sector banks used to be fairly common. But there's only one left, and that's the Bank of North Dakota, which is was established in 1919. Hmm. But in Los Angeles, there is a proposal now that would create a public bank. So rather than relying on private banks to finance housing, infrastructure, community development, the city would say, forget that, we're going to set up our own bank. And the idea is that eventually it would better serve the community, but there are some questions as well. Yeah, I think it, I think it gets to an interesting policy question of, you know, where where's the the line starts to blur between this is a private sector role and this is a public sector role. And by and large, we think of banking services as being, you know, they'll come to you if you you need a loan to buy a house or start a business or whatever. Somebody, you know, if you've got a meritorious case, there'll be someone out there to serve that need. But you know, maybe the the notion here is that a private bank that has a has a you know purely capitalistic motivation, they don't really necessarily care about the community. They're just looking at it from the bottom line perspective. If it's a publicly owned enterprise, they may be thinking about, oh, the neighborhood where you want to refurbish that house would benefit from this activity. So you know, we're we'll we'll we'll, we'll think of it more kindly. I don't know. Um, I don't know what North Dakota's doing. I don't know. I mean, you know, Guam's not in on this. Guam is I don't not in on this. So, okay. All right. I looked well, at that closely. Uh, okay. Yeah, so, not yet. Still need a trip, maybe. Uh, so, <laughs> um, but I think, you know, maybe this is another trendsetter. If, if the city of Los Angeles finds this is a productive way to stimulate development in areas and, and having a, a sort of community owned lender, maybe, maybe it becomes a big deal. I don't know. Now, let me play devil's advocate and put my bank industry had on for a second because they dispute everything you just said. I mean, th- their their issue is that, you know, taxpayer dollars would be used to capitalize the bank and maybe those dollars would be put at risk with, you know, no clarity on right. how yeah. potential defaults would be covered. And then also 
the banking industry is saying, look, you know, there's a lot of startup costs involved here that could run into the billions. You'd have to hire attorneys, consultants, compliance yeah, officers. Right. So, so this is a, a big task, but big it's enterprise. an interesting yeah, question. Yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. As I recall, arguments like that turned out to be persuasive in this very state. It wasn't hmm. that long ago the state passed a law to preempt local governments from sponsoring their own public banks. So we can't do it here, um, maybe short of a you know constitutional change, something like that. We know, Michael, that governments are struggling to raise revenue since the recession, and some governments have started taxing services such as Netflix and yoga. <laughs> and in response, Arizona could be the second state to ban any expansion on the tax on services. So, so this is sort of a preemptive strike, the state government moving in and saying, we shouldn't start getting into this business. Let's stop the slippery slope right now. Right. right? So I, mean, I guess this could either take the form of a general sales tax being applied to something new like like a video streaming service like Netflix mm -hmm. or to a membership fee or that sort of thing. Or it could be like a selective like excise tax sort of thing in the way that, you know, and in, in Maryland, we have, uh, we have an admissions and amusements tax that is set by a local government, but it applies to a variety of things. In theory, you know, we could say all that applies to Netflix if you live in this county or in that city or whatever. So Arizona is going to have on the ballot what I'm sure will sound like a pretty attractive question to a typical voter. Do you want to make sure we don't start taxing these various services? And I don't, I don't know how it'll be phrased or summarized, but there's probably a pretty good chance that could pass, right? Right, definitely. And the argument, you know, is that these taxes are regressive. But the opponents to this measure say, look, without the ability to expand the sales tax base, you're really tying the hands of the state and local governments because people looking to expand revenue would be left with only one option and that would be to raise the tax rate the current right? tax right? right so like, yeah you end up you end up in a, like if you're concerned about regressivity about the burden being placed unfairly on lower income people then if if the the need for public programs requires some new revenue what you know, take that as a given for a moment mm -hmm. if there's two ways to do it one is apply the tax to Netflix who, who the people who've got 12 bucks a month to have a streaming service are probably not the poorest of the poor mm -hmm. um apply the tax to you know a gym uh, yeah gym membership or these things that are Almost by almost anybody's, you know, by almost anybody's reckoning, they're non-essential purchases. They're probably not as regressive as the general sales tax. So if you take this stuff off the table and then you go and say, okay, well, our six percent tax is going to go to six and a half percent because you've left us with no option, and, and we're going to, and that's going to be applied to the pair of shoes and your school supplies and so on and so forth. You may have shot yourself in the foot on regressivity um, because those other options may be worse off than the Netflix tax. Right? Yeah, always another side, always interesting. Okay, so San Francisco has a ballot measure on the table that would essentially tax the city's top corporations to fund homeless services. Any corporate revenue topping $50 million would be taxed. And that would apply to more than 300 of the city's largest businesses. This would bring in an estimated revenue of up to $300 million a year, which would effectively double the amount of money being spent to combat homelessness right now in San Francisco. So this is trying to harness two things that are relatively tried and true. The idea of an earmarked revenue for a particular purpose has frequently proven a, a good way to get a revenue passed. And in the transportation field, we've seen it all the time, regional sales taxes to fund a transit system. If you just say, do you want to pay a higher sales tax? No. Would you pay a higher sales tax if it meant that we did these various things to fund mass transit? And then the region says, yeah, we'll do that. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we've seen that kind of thing happen before. Um, yeah, we, to some degree, the, the idea of approving, approving casinos in Maryland was tied to an education trust fund that made the state able to live up to its education commitments. We're theoretically, I have on the ballot once again to look at that and, and, you know, make it more, make it more rigid. But I mean, marrying the sort of, you know, the recent politics of the 1% along with this idea of pinpointing the revenue to people who are at the opposite end of the, of the income scale and wealth scale. I mean, so that's going to have a certain appeal. And 
Uh, I'm no expert on San Francisco politics, but I reckon there's some folks who live in that city who might find this an attractive proposal. Yeah, and then you also have to worry about, well, if you do this, are these big companies that bring lots of jobs and lots of revenue for your tax base, are they going to just leave town? All right, Michael, we saved the best one for last because I did not know you needed congressional approval. I have to admit that if you wanted to do away with daylight savings time, but... This is apparently big. It's a big deal. This is a big deal right so Florida here. already passed a law to do this, but they can't get Congress to act. Another mm-hmm. fun fun fact. But Californians are going to consider a proposal to no longer fall back in November and spring ahead in March. Now, the proponents of this point to the medical risk associated with the time change. A study has found that the risk of heart attack increases by 10% within two days after a clock adjustment. But opponents say, look, if we don't spring forward and fall back, particularly in the wintertime, the sun may not come up until 820 in the morning, which is going to lead to more accidents, more pedestrians being put at risk because it's dark outside. Even if they pass this ballot initiative, they have two hurdles. Number one, they have to get two-thirds approval in the state assembly. Number two, they need Congress to act, which has been difficult of late. Yeah, it it is interesting. I mean, I don't know if this could be a case where California, again, is the the big first domino that leads to a to a national effect. I, I, I don't know the, the nuances of this. I, I didn't know the feds really controlled all the cards here. I did not. And I don't know how to like, isn't there like some pocket of Indiana and is it all of Arizona or part of Arizona that don't observe daylight? How do I mean, do these, do these folks all get grandfathered in maybe or something on the federal law? I, I'm assuming so. I know yeah. Hawaii and parts of Arizona have, have gotten approval. And then I think Indiana is weird. But I will say that Congress did not establish a federal law until 1966. So it's possible that they were grandfathered in. Okay. So anyhow, we'll see what, I mean, I don't know what Californians will vote because that's a, that's an odd lot. What as would far you as vote we're for? Concerned. Well, yeah. If we had it on the ballot, here, oh, I want it out. You want it out. I want it out. Like, gone, yeah, gone. Yeah, gone. So yeah, <laughs> we're anti-daylight uh, yeah. saving time folks here. Just FYI, another so, fun f- fact. Official position of the podcast. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm good with it. I'm good with it. All right. All right, Michael, what are we looking forward to moving forward besides the election? We know that's going to be the big news next week, but anything else that you're looking forward to? Um, well, an interesting thing, um, we're, coming in on 100 years remembrance for the end of World War One. Um, a former MAKO president, David Craig, is the head of a commission who's leading Maryland's effort to do some commemorations. And uh, November 11th, at 11 a.m., this is the the official signing of the treaty. This is you know, it used to be Armistice Day and and, and so forth. Uh, we're going to take that opportunity on November 11th at 11 a.m. for everybody who's got bells, church bells, or or other things of that nature, to ring the bells as a remembrance of all those who served and sacrificed in World War One. This is an effort taking place across the country. Um, I think there'll be a big presence and a lot of participation in Maryland. We're going to see county governments do it. I know we're going to see a lot of volunteer fire companies and a lot of the faith community is doing it. So, you know, World War One has maybe to some degree gotten a little lost in the shuffle with more recent conflicts. And But uh, there's a lot of families and, and a lot of our country still owes a debt to those who, who gave everything. So um, I'm looking forward to that as an opportunity for everybody to take a moment. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to the decision on the Amazon HQ2 that is going to be the new Amazon headquarters. Many cities and states are involved in trying to draw Amazon, including Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. I think Amazon would be wise to withhold this decision until after the election (laughs) because that could certainly have an effect. But even if Maryland doesn't get Amazon, if it goes to, say, Crystal Mm -hmm. City, Virginia – there will still be a massive effect on the state of Maryland in a very positive way. But of course, we're hoping Maryland wins Amazon. Yeah. So, I mean, the stakes are awfully high in this. This is as big of an economic development derby as the country, I think, has ever seen. Yes. A process like this has been so public and so forward. But, uh, you know, Maryland's made a really strong pitch and we have, you know, access to all the things that make sense. So uh, a lot of people think that the D.C. region is among the regions that make the most sense for the location. So we'll we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. But uh, a lot of people are pacing the floors on this one, too. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. Remember that next week we'll bring you an episode to recap Tuesday's election. We'll talk about all of the interesting state and local races, 
Also on our blog, the Conduit Street blog, we will have a ton of content starting on Wednesday morning. So if you're looking for information on state and local races, that's where you can find it. It's a great resource. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please feel free to give us a like, subscribe, share with your friends. Really helps to get our message out. But until next week, this is Kevin Canale and Michael Sanderson signing off. We will talk to you soon. Thank you.